Take that Bible this morning and look over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we come to a, a new section, although John is uh, incredible in linking his thoughts together. Let me read for you the section as we head into it today. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Follow along with me in your Bible as I read. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge, and I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth, who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to te- that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, it is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Well, very interesting section of Scripture. And as I mentioned in my prayer, one of the beauties of expositional teaching is that when you get to the text, you get to the text and you can't skip the text. And I just was thinking, I don't know if I would pick this if you think of all the, the things that are stated in the scripture, both old and new, it would be much easier to begin to pursue something that would seem so much, maybe we might say, more practical or maybe something more relevant the thought might be today in our own setting as we hear people talk but I would say to you nothing could be more important and our desire here at Grace Church of the Valley is always to look into the Word of God and so if you're visiting today that is what we do that is what we are about we teach from the Word of God and we desire to live by it now as we come to this section of scripture we've been stating all along that the purpose of 1 John is really to delineate a series of tests by which you could know if you are in Christ. He's writing, though, to assure us that we are in Christ, and so he puts it in the series of these tests. He writes so that us, his readers, would have the assurance of salvation. We've been using that key scripture all along in 513 where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. God the Father, God the Son, and the Scripture, the Spirit of God, want you to know that you have assurance. Now what John does here in this section is he denounces the false teachers, and you will see in the weeks to come, and their heretical view of Christ, But at the same time, he denounces them, he affirms the truthfulness, 
regarding the person of Christ and the assurance that faith in Christ actually brings. Now, you remember, as I mentioned there, that he's weaving all the way through 1 John a series of these tests. We put them in three categories, you remember? We said there's doctrinal tests of of what you believe. Here, we're going to see one of those on the person of Christ. There are moral tests as it relates to our obedience. And there are relational tests as it relates of our love one towards towards one another. And so in one way or another, they seem to be focused around those three. Now in this section from 18 down through 27, as I mentioned, it is a doctrinal test. And the question that would be raised for us is, do you have an accurate view of Christ? Now it's not just Christology, though it is that. It's Christology for the point of assurance. In fact, All of this will find its focus in 2.22. Look there where John says in 2.22, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. If you will look in your Bible over at chapter 4, just the next page, in verse 3, there John says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist and so forth. And so here we come to a right view of Christ. Obviously, a wrong view of Christ will send you straight to hell. And so it's very, very important that we think rightly in terms of our Christology, which a lot of people seem to want to push to the side, but John will have none of that. He will put that at the forefront of our teaching here. Now what John does here is present then genuine believers side by side with the false teachers in 18 through 27. He addresses those who have departed and those who have remained loyal in the faith. He describes here the difference between a real believer and a make-believer in order that you might test yourself Test your children and the others you love. And so if you follow this argument, he writes to distinguish, as we read already, between the liars, between the Antichrist, those who do not have the Father and the Son, those who are not from God in 4.3, to distinguish that from those who truly have the Father and the Son in chapter 2, verse 23, who are from God, chapter 4, 2, and then those who enjoy a relationship with God in 4, 15, and those who are born of God in 5, 1, and those who have overcome the world in 5, 5. And so the contrast is between genuine profession and lasting faith and spurious faith and defection. And so what he does is he presents these two contrasts this morning that once again direct us to the assurance of our salvation. Now, I would tell you this, um, because it's different than what I thought, you know, when I was growing up. John provides these tests to strengthen our faith, not cause you to doubt your faith. And I think every time I've heard 1 John preached, it seems as though 
as it's put out to you that it might cause you to doubt. That's not why he writes. This, I write to you these things so that you may know you have eternal life. And then he sets up these series of tests. But these tests, though, are to affirm that you trusted Christ and have assurance. Obviously, there's some who will fail that test. There's some who won't fit into this test and will be seen as the outsiders, and that will be true. But as you look at that, that's for the purpose of strengthening you here at Grace Church. So his purpose is to strengthen our confidence because you, in fact, look down at 2.21, where he says, I write to you because you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. And so he gives us yet one more test to distinguish between the Antichrist and the true believer. And and the passage here is a warning against those false teachers, but it set aside a word of assurance to the true believers, okay? Now, with any test, as I mentioned, some will pass, some will fail the test, but the tests enable you ultimately to understand why some have defected from the truth. John really is after that this morning, and I just pray that the Spirit of God would encourage you that way. Some have departed. Some leave. Have you ever wondered about those people? Have you ever wondered about people who were side by side with you for years, and then they're gone? What do you do with that? How do you answer those questions? I'm not talking about people who seemed nominal. I'm talking about people who confess Christ. I'm talking about people who were baptized. I'm talking about people maybe that you served with, but then somehow they're gone. And I would tell you in Kingsburg, I meet them every single week. Every week. Every week that I've been here, I've met somebody who went this and this place, and they're gone. And I invariably invite them here. Not that church is the bottom line, but they're gone. They're at some denomination, some church that grandma, mom, dad was raised in. Gone. What do you do with those people? What do you do with people who defect? You're here. You're the faithful. How are you to respond? John writes so that we might understand exactly why they're gone. And I hope to make that crystal clear to you by the Spirit and the Word of God. So here's these two contrasts. He says to us, recognize first the false antichrist and their defection. We'll look at that. But then secondly, we want to recognize true believers and our anointing. Okay? Recognize false antichrist and their defection, and we'll say more next week, and then recognize true believers and our anointing. Let's dive into the text in this first principle, recognizing these false antichrist. Now remember last week, after giving a command not to love the world, and we're not to love the world because the world indeed is passing away, he's now going to push forward in the text that it is indeed the last hour. Look at the text. Pick it up here under recognizing false antichrist. It says in verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrist have come. And so as he addresses that the world is passing away, 
he now says that the end is in sight. And he addresses us and says, children, it is the last hour. Now, as you open up that section in verse 18, you see that children, and again, he's used that before. We understood that to be a reference to those who are part of the family of God. It is a reference not to the spiritually elite, not to those who are intellectually astute. It is addressed to you. You are the children. I am, you know, we are the children, if you will, of God. John the Apostle, certainly close to his 90s here, is writing as an aged veteran. Remember, it's probably 60 years after the cross, 60 years after Pentecost. This is a man who's weathered the storms, and as he picks up his pen under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he uses that term of affection to those who are part of the family of God. And I think the part of the family of God is either discouraged or in danger, if you will. There is an evil lurking within. There is a threat taking place. There is a gangrene, if you will, that needs to be cut out. And so after he addresses that the world is passing away along with its lust, he says to us, children, it is the last hour. There is a sense of urgency here, okay? Now, the serious nature of that urgency is in the next phrase. Look at it in verse 18. He says, children, and then he uses that phrase, it is the last hour. Now, what does that phrase mean? It is the last hour. It is best to understand the phrase, the last hour, as the time between the first and the second coming of Christ. So I would say to you, even this morning, beloved, we are in the last hour. We're in it. John wrote about the last hour. We're in it today. That phrase, the last hour, is very similar in Scripture in the New Testament to the last days. You ever hear that phrase, the last days? Sometimes the phrase is used to refer to the last times. Different words, but very similar in concept. John says, it's the last hour, it's the last days, it's the last times. And again, they refer to the the time between the first and the second coming of Christ. Remember that Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1 that the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith being devoted themselves, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Well, we're in those times. We're in those later times, 1 Timothy 4.1. In fact, in the book of James, when James indicted, which is funny when you think of James. I really want to do James here one time. That's the hard part for me. I always want to do everything, you know. But I want to do James with you. And here we are, we're reading 1 John And John's probably writing around 90 A.D. Then you go to the back of your Bible and read James. And when was James written? The first book ever written in the New Testament. Which is, you you think, well, no, 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 Pastor. It's Matthew, Mark. No, it's not. According to the dates, James was written probably around 45 A.D. James said this to the rich of his day, he said, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion, he said, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
And then James says, you have laid up treasure, he said, in the last days. We're in the last days. He says, you've laid it up for that, and those people obviously will be judged. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 3, 3, that scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. You see, all these phrases, last days, last hour, we're in it. And so the last hour came with the coming of Christ, and it will end when He returns, and then we usually call that in the Scripture, the age to come. I mean, we are living in the fullness of time. We are living, the Scriptures say, at the end of the age. I mean, it's kind of sobering to think that. I mean, if you're just comfortable, I just want you to say, wake up. We're in the last hours here. We're in the last days. Don't get so comfortable that you forget the deception that can come in. And that's what John is saying here, okay? He's saying that we're in the last hour. And it's just ways to express that. Hebrews, remember this? In chapter 1, you might know it by heart, that long ago, God, verse 1-1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers and by the prophets. That's the Old Testament, right? But then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so the arrival of the Son inaugurated the last days. It inaugurated, if you will, the last hour. I mean, Peter understood this, and you might not be able to write all these down, but Peter said in 120, that he, speaking of Christ, was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. When he came, at least biblically, it is the last times for the sake of you. And we are living in this Galatians 1.4 present evil age and the last times and the last hour has been going on for 2,000 years. Years, right? So I'm just trying to get our reference here. Now, now look at the text again in 2.18. It's always about the text, is it not? Children, he says, it is the last hour since of urgency. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrist have come. Now you catch that phrase there. We can't just skip over that. You have heard that Antichrist, two, two features here, right? Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrist have come. So at the lead of this is that term Antichrist. It's interesting that that term for Antichrist only occurs here in John's writings. Right here and in, in other places in John. You say, well, I've seen that term before. Not exactly like this one. And there's obviously other names for Antichrist, okay? It's frequently used throughout the Word of God in another form. And Antichrist, as I mentioned, has a lot of names. But this phrase here, Antichrist, comes just simply from a, a compound word, uh, Christos, okay? Which means Christ. It's not hard to understand. And anti which means against 
or it just means in the place of. So the Antichrist then speaks of those who oppose Christ. It speaks of those who are in opposition to him. You say, well, what does the Antichrist affirm? Look here at 2.22. He spells it out, and we'll get into this next week. Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the, what? Antichrist. It's a very broad term in some ways that just speaks of one who opposes Christ. And here they deny, specifically in 2.22, that Jesus is the Christ. They deny that he's the Messiah. In fact, if you look also, look over at the chapter 4, verse 3, there you see another definition of that term. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world. And so they deny Christ here. They, deny, they do not confess that Jesus is... They conf, every spirit, 4.3, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. There may be an Antichrist in this building. Okay, There may be one at your work. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But you just see the word means one who opposes Christ or who's in the place of Christ or one who is in opposition to Christ. Look all the way over, just turn right a little bit to 2 John. 2 John, as you know, only has one chapter. So look at 2 John verse 7, where it says there, 2 John 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world, and those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, in other words, they deny his humanity, such, John says in 2.7, or excuse me, in 2 John 7, such a one is the deceiver and is the, what? Antichrist. I mean, when you think of that term here, as you look back in 1 John 2.18, uh, many Antichrist have, have come. I'm, I'm thinking of the words of Christ in Matthew 12.30. This is how you understand it. That he who is not with me is what? Is against me. Anybody who's against Christ is manifesting that spirit. Anyone who does not embrace Christ is the spirit of Antichrist. But look again at the text in 2.18. I don't want to skip over it, but I don't want to become dominated by it. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is what? He's coming, okay? And many Antichrist have come. And so here he just says that he is coming. And we see that phrase. It's an important phrase, okay? And you'll know what, know what John says there. He says, you have heard this. In other words, he's writing to these, to these believers, and this they, they know, okay? They know this. You have heard this. You're, you're familiar with this. There will emerge, and I think you know this too, there will emerge one man who will be the ultimate and final antichrist. He, according to the word of God, will be a powerful figure. He will be a horrible man. He will be a despicable man. 
And this will occur in the time of the tribulation or the great tribulation. A period of time in which Satan will release his power. He is known as the Antichrist. He's given other names in the word of God though. In Daniel 8.23, he will come and he will be insolent, it says, and skilled in intrigue. Daniel in 9.26 refers to him as the prince who is to come. Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13 says that the Antichrist will commit at the midpoint of the tribulation the abomination of what? Desolation. Okay, in 2 Thessalonians, he is called the man of lawlessness. He is called in 2 Thessalonians the son of destruction. He is here, 1 John 2.18, referred to as the Antichrist. He, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, verse 4, is referred to as the beast. He's given all those names. And they knew that he was coming. The Antichrist here in that final form is that diabolical madman who will be inspired by Satan himself to unleash persecution against the Jews and against the believers in the tribulation. He will make Hitler look like a Boy Scout. So lest you get too comfortable here, don't forget that the world is passing away, right? Don't put all your hope here. And I, maybe something happened this week to ever teach you that. Because right after he says it's passing away with its lust, children, it's the last hour. And as I've told you or you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. One historian said that he will be the counterfeit Christ that makes a treaty with Israel, but in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, he will break that pact. He will desecrate the temple. He will forbid the practice of Jewish religion. He will blaspheme God. And he will precipitate the Holocaust of Armageddon, which will end at the return of Jesus Christ. That's the last hour. So they can do fireworks at the Olympics, and I'm not poo-pooing them, okay? You can do all that stuff, but it's all passing away. And it could be that as I speak... The final Antichrist is on the scene. It's on the scene. So it's passing away. So he says, children, it's it's really the last hour. And I'm thinking of that passage in Revelation 13, in verse 5, where it says there was given to him, the Antichrist, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him for three and a half years. Revelation 13, 6 said he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. His blasphemy will be unparalleled. He blasphemes God, does the Antichrist, to the degree of insolence and self-exaltation that is beyond what has ever been done in the history of the world. This is the one who's coming. Okay, look in your Bible over back to 2 Thessalonians. Let me take you to one passage because I'm just trying to build that out a little bit. What, of course, John is saying that you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. But in 2 Thessalonians, remember, he is described there. You say, what will he be like? What will he do? Well, 
2 Thessalonians, and I'm turning you to Thessalonians for a particular reason, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1, and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or in the spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, he says this, Now, let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the Antichrist, right? The son of destruction who opposes, verse 4, and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, Paul says here, as you see it in 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? In fact, go down at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. This is interesting because they refuse to love the what? The truth so it's to be saved. What I don't read there is they refused the truth because God sovereignly didn't choose them. No. It says there that they, were, they refused the truth. They're perishing because they refused to love the truth and so to be saved. They just didn't love the truth. But this one is coming. Now, as you look back in 1 John, okay, I just want you to know that as John writes now in 1 John chapter 2, he's writing about, as at this point, about 40 years later than when Thessalonians was written, okay? And, and that's just the New Testament. Daniel spoke of the Antichrist in chapter 7. He spoke of the Antichrist in chapter 8. He spoke of the Antichrist to Daniel in chapter 11. The Gospel writers in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, spoke of the Antichrist. So again, look at the text. He just says, it's the last hours you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Now, people have proposed numerous historical figures who think that the person is the Antichrist, and you've heard that. Some people thought it was Nero. Then people thought it was Muhammad. Okay? Then people thought the Antichrist was various popes. Then they thought the Antichrist was Napoleon. Then some people thought the Antichrist was Mussolini. Then some people thought that the Antichrist was Adolf Hitler. Be careful of that attempt. In fact, when I grew up, do some of you older folks remember, people thought it was a guy by the name of Henry Kissinger. Do you remember that name? He's the Antichrist uniting everyone. And people do this and they say these things. We have to be careful to not come to a quick conclusion. But John just says, children, it's the last hour. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. But look at the next phrase, though. This is where John's going. He said, so now... Many antichrists have what? Come. I mean, again, when he said that, it's been 60 years after the cross, 60 years after Pentecost, 
And countless more antichrists have plagued the church from this time of the writing until now. And so if you want to look at it this way, the Antichrist in the first instance in 2.18 is an individual that will emerge at the end of the world. In the second instant, it is plural. You, you see that in 18. It, Antichrist refers then to any false teacher who distorts the teaching of Christ or who opposes Christ. In fact, I would even broaden it that. It's anybody who opposes the person and work of Jesus Christ. So John here then is not so much focused on identifying a particular individual. The Antichrist, beloved, is a spirit. It is a way of thinking. It is not just one person. It is not even just many persons. It is an attitude toward Christ that personifies itself finally in one person, but in the meantime, in many persons. One writer said it this way, any person, think about it this way, who is against Christ, any person who attacks the deity of Christ, any person who is hostile to the true nature of Christ, whether it's his deity or his humanity, uh, to the work of Christ is possessing the spirit of Antichrist. Now, these false teachers were dangerous to the health of the church. I mean, they are today as well. And you could usually find these guys in Christian bookstores, honestly. They're everywhere. I, I should read you some of the stuff in my file on what some of the faith healers used to say regarding the person of Christ. Maybe I'll do that next week. But John writes here to expose these heretical teachers who appear in sheep's clothing, but in reality are ravenous, what? Wolves. So look back at the text. You get why he says this? Children. He says it's the last hour. We've heard that many antichrist, or that the antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. Look how he finishes. Therefore, we know that it is the last, what? Hour. There's got to be a sense of urgency. We are in it right now. Now, what John does then is describe the defection of these teachers. Look at the text in verse 19. It's very important. Have you seen this text before? Let me explain it in its context. It's one that I think I just kind of memorized growing up. But they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. I mean, stop there. It's just very possible that some were thinking, hey, why did they leave? I mean, maybe something's wrong with us. I mean, these false teachers came in with their false, their error, their heresy, and some followed them in their teaching, and they brought their lies into the church, and some left. And I think John's just trying to explain that some were thinking, how are we to understand that? Why did some leave the flock? I mean, did they actually have the truth? Are we missing something? Are we wrong? How did this all transpire? 
I mean, those who left seem so genuine. I mean, what happened? And what John wants to make crystal clear is that the false antichrist have left the church because they never belonged to the what? To the church. I've grown up with people like this. You say you have? Oh, yeah. I've grown up with what I'm thinking in terms of one guy who was the most spiritual leader at that particular time in the high school group. And he would tell you that. And other people would tell you that. He was over at our home when I grew up, swam in our doughboy pool or above the ground pool. Knew him well, but this is a guy who, t- who taught. This is a young man who was very intellectual, a young man who knew philosophy, a young man who can communicate truth, a young man who knew how to tell a story, but as he kept going, he slowly began to depart. And he slowly pulled out. And then he slowly owed a lot of people a lot of money. And then he stopped going to church altogether. And then he was gone altogether. Until the last time I saw his mugshot for being arrested for armed robbery for 24 armed robberies. Got thrown in jail. Became somebody in the jail and got out. And a few later he called me. I wasn't sure why he called me, but I asked him if he was following the Lord, and he said, no, I'm not. He was honest with me, but what do you do with those people? You say, I knew that guy. I walk with that guy. I heard that guy teach. That guy and I talked doctrine for hours. That guy was the spiritual leader, and he's gone. I mean, what what do you do with those people? Well, look what John says about him in 2.19. He says, break it down, he says, they went out from us. Now you you might, the verb there is active voice, which is to me interesting. You say, okay, what does that mean in plain language, okay? They went out on their own accord. That's what it means, interestingly. In other words, they excommunicated themselves and departed from the faith. Now, I'm sure when John talks, he's talking about not a nominal person. He's talking about somebody who confessed Christ. I'm assuming he's talking about someone who was baptized. I'm sure he's talking about someone who was born again, but they went out from us. Scary phrase. Because that same phrase is used of this guy named Judas, where it says, quote, that he went out from the company of the disciples in the upper room, John 13, 30. Listen, they went out from us and they proved by their defection, look at the next phrase, that they were not, what, of us. You say, well, what are they, Scott? They're not true believers, period. They never belonged to Christ. They may have participated, but they were never yoked with Christ. They are not part of the fellowship. You say, well, why though? Well, look at the text again. It says, for if they had been of us, my words, but they aren't, they would have what? Continued with us, but they didn't. 
I mean, in other words, they're never born again. They never were of us because if they were, they would have remained. They would have continued. And so their defection then marked them out as those who had departed from the faith. They are on another team. In fact, look what John says in 2.19. He says, but, and I'm in the middle there, they went out that it might become plain that they are not what of us. That's their true colors were revealed. And here is the decisive proof. They do not belong. Listen, beloved, they do not know God. They are in the darkness even until now in 2.9. They did not remain with us. They were, I don't know, I just, can I just say it straight? Imposters. They're phonies. Their faith is spurious. It's not real. You say, well, then who is the real? I'll get to it in the week to come. But look at verse 27. But he says, but the anointing that you've received from him, what? Abides in you so that you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and there's no lie, just as he has taught you, abide in you. But these people are not believers. You say, well, what's the point? This, this, this. Listen, do not be shaken that some have left. Do not be shaken by their departure. Do not be shaken by their claims. John says to you by the Spirit of God, do not become flustered. Do not become rattled. Do not think, hey, this person in my family left. Maybe something's wrong with me. No, I'm saying there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, John's just explaining the spirit of the Antichrist and their defection. So listen, do not doubt what you know to be true. Do not doubt the Scripture and those who taught you the Word of God Don't seek, I think even it goes beyond, some superior knowledge or some mystical view of Christ. Do not doubt the truthfulness of the Word of God. When these teachers and others left, it simply revealed their hypocrisy of where they truly stood. They were never part of the flock. They're not true believers. You say, well, Scott, what about your friend? He's a pagan unbeliever. And I guarantee you, if I brought him in here, he knows more than most of us. Frightening. Does he live accordingly? Oh, no. His whole life, in some ways, has been obviously under the cloak of darkness. But listen, don't be surprised, little flock. That's what John would say. Don't be surprised, children. You say, so he says, recognize these false teachers and their defection. But he says something real positive. He said, secondly here, recognize true believers and our anointing. But look what he says in 20. This is the encouragement, okay? He says, but you, I love that little phrase, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And he says, you have all knowledge. I love that phrase. He says, but you, because you might say, well, Scott, what assurance do I have? I mean, what resources do I have in the midst of the conflict that would give me assurance? It could be. 
Maybe some of you are saying, man, when I start talking about the Antichrist, it's kind of like talking about Mufasa from The Lion King. Ooh, you know, and you just get scared. Listen, John doesn't want you to be scared. He says, but you, look at it again. You, if you're a believer in Christ, have been anointed. You have something here in 20 and 21 that marks out the genuineness of salvation. You say, well, what is it? Well, there's two characteristics. Look first in verse 20. Number one, he says, you have an anointing. What is that? Well, it's only one place in the New Testament that's used both here and it's used in 2.27 and that's it. But you say, what is that? What is the anointing? Well, in the Old Testament, remember that priests and kings and prophets sometimes were anointed with what? Oil, right? And that was a way to mark the beginning of their duties. It kind of, the oil marked the, the thought of consecration. In Isaiah 61.1, the anointing there symbolized the reception of the Spirit so that one might lead or one might prophesy. In fact, remember in, in Isaiah 61.1 where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord anointed me. Jesus used that in the New Testament in the temple, remember, and closed the book and said, this has been fulfilled. Because in the New Testament, when Jesus came, the fulfillment of Isaiah 61.1 was that he was anointed in the scripture uh, at his baptism, not with oil, but he was anointed with who? With the Holy Spirit, okay? And I'm thinking of that text in Acts 10.38 where it said that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Now, this is an interesting phrase. I don't want to get too technical with you, okay? That's the noun form when it says you have, verse 20, been anointed. But I think it's fascinating. In the verb form of that word, the verb just is used five different times in the New Testament. It's used in Luke 4.18. It's used in Acts 4.27. It's used in Acts 10.38. It's used in 2 Corinthians 1.21 and in Hebrews 1.9. And with the exception of Hebrews 1.9, that verb always refers to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So what John is saying is, listen, you're here. You haven't departed. You haven't defected. You're abiding in Christ. And here's the resource. Here's why. You have been anointed, if you will, by the what? The Holy Spirit. Look over in 2 Corinthians just for a second. 2 Corinthians 121, okay? It's a great text. I don't know if you've ever read it in this way. 2 Corinthians 121, 2 Corinthians 121, where Paul says, it is God, 121, who establishes us with you in Christ and has, what? Anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and has given us his, what? Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What a statement. I love that. The Trinity's at work. God established us in Christ, but he's given us his spirit, and there it says that his spirit is our guarantee, Ephesians 1.13. 
The Spirit of God is your down payment, if you will, of the guarantee of your salvation. So you say, what's the point, Scott? Again, he's dealing with assurance. Don't be frightened. Say, why? Because if you're a believer, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And in John's gospel, Christ promised to send the what? The Holy Spirit to be with the disciples after his departure. And it is the Holy Spirit's role to teach them and us the truth. In fact, let me show you. Look over in John just for a second. Just watch this. It's a precious truth because he's dealing with assurance here. That's the context. You've seen these statements, wonderful statements. Look again in John chapter 14, and we'll be just a minute in John, and then we'll close. It says in 14, 16, remember when he was praying there, talking with his disciples before his departure. 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, what, helper. We know that that's advocate. To be with you, how long? Forever. Listen, if you got the spirits, you got the spirits. And he's with you for how long? Forever. You say, well, what happened about the people who were there? They weren't in Christ. But you have an anointing. Look what the spirit will do in 1417. Even the spirit of truth. I love that phrase because the spirit brings truth. Never a lie. Pick up the text in 17, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be what? In you. I love that thought. He's the spirit of truth and he's living inside of you. So listen, you can never depart. You can never defect because if you've been born again of the spirit, then the Spirit's going to manifest truth to you. Look over at John chapter 15, verse 26. Amazing statement there, just affirming this. When the Helper comes, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about what? Me. So one of the things John's saying here is you've got Antichrist who've got a messed up Christology. But listen, when a believer hears that, you've got the Holy Spirit. You You can detect truth from error. Look over at John chapter 16, verse 13. There, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you unto what? All the truth. And I think he particularly there, he's talking to the disciples. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So, beloved, listen, God has empowered us through Christ with the Holy Spirit who permanently dwells in us to teach us everything we need to know regarding the person of Christ He will lead you under the truth. He will never lead you to a lie. And so here is a great context. I'm thinking of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, 16, who bears witness with our spirits that we are children, what? 
of God. There's that inner witness of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 3.24 says, by this we know. In fact, look over, go back to 1 John. Let me just show you that and we'll t- look at it later. But here's what he says in 1 John 3.24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has, what? He has given to us. Listen, the anointing we've received is the Holy Spirit. This imparting of the Holy Spirit is given to the believer at regeneration. And when you're given that, you have been given a God-given supernatural ability to detect truth from error. And listen, that's why John will later say you don't have anybody that needs to teach it. doesn't mean that there doesn't need to be teachers. We understand that from the New Testament. But you have everything you need in your resource to be faithful to Christ. Look over at 1 John 4.13. There, John says, By this we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his, what? Spirit. So listen, the Gnostics were claiming to be in the inner circle and possess some secret knowledge that unlocks the profound mysteries of the Bible. John says that's nonsense. He says that's a bunch of baloney. You have basically all you need. You've been been anointed by the Spirit of God who leads us into all the truth. So I would say to you, Grace Church, you be careful about seeking extra revelation rather than the Word of God. You be careful whether it's the gift of tongues or whether it's some kind of superior knowledge or it's some kind of revelation, which, by the way, that's the cool thing right now. When you say, what's the cool thing? All you have to do is be an author and say, I talk to Jesus. All you have to do, be a woman, write a book, and claim Jesus speaks to me. All you have to do is say, I had this experience, and the room will get real quiet, as though that's more power than the Word of God. Listen, you have the Holy Spirit, and whenever the Spirit of God is there, it's the Spirit of truth, and the Spirit always works with the truth of God's Word. So listen, you have assurance. You say, what gives me that assurance? The anointing. You say, these people left. I know, they never were of us. And I'm not talking about people who go from one church to another church. You know that, okay? But he says, they, they left some altogether. But listen, you have an anointing. You have the Holy Spirit. Where would you go? You can't. And you're going to be faithful to the end because God's going to persevere through you. And the Spirit of God is going to illuminate your heart and mind towards the truth we have a wonderful god don't we and a wonderful assurance do not be afraid little flock some i'm thinking of how john would say it to us not me john would say don't be afraid oh the antichrist is coming the spirit of the antichrist many have come they went out from us they were not of us if they were of us they would have remained with us but they went out that it might be demonstrated that they're not of us but you you have an anointing